The first of my posts to the Facebook group was a focused summary of Book 10, Chapters 5-7. through Since parts of these chapters were hard for me to even comprehend, they were very hard for me to summarize, but I did my best, and I hope it's helpful. In Chapter 5, we follow the light Quasimodo had seen gleaming through a distant window into the Bastille and the chamber of King Louis XI. It is a sparsely but purposefully furnished room. It has just one chair, but a superb one, showing that but one person in that room had the right to be seated. There is not much kingly about the appearance of the man seated in the chair, with his knock knees, slender shanks, thin, wrinkled hands, woolen socks, battered fur coat, and greasy hat. Next to him is a splendidly costumed nobleman, with an evil expression, a haughty mien, and a proud bearing, Master Olivier. Behind him stand two men, clad in Flemish fashion, whom we recognize from the audience of Gringoire's play. They are Guillaume Rim, the pensionary, and Jacques Copenol, the hosier. At the far end of the room is a man with square face, goggle eyes, immense mouth, lank hair, and a look of both dog and tiger. While Rim and Copenol complain of weariness with standing, the man beside the king reads from a long scroll, itemizing all the king's household expenses. The king complains bitterly of the ever-increasing yearly expense of keeping chaplains, valet, exchequers, grooms, stewards, scullions, and soup-makers— useless servants fattening on his leanness. The king responds to the continued list of expenses, ranging from a provost's silver seal to a friar's confession of a criminal to fifty-six proclamations by trumpet, with wry expressions and sarcastic comments. The first expense that meets with his approval is, quote, the safekeeping of the lions at the Hotel St. Paul, unquote which he declares a luxury which befits a king. And besides, he congratulates himself for being more moderate than his predecessors when it comes to lions, bears, elephants, and leopards. The first expense he positively refuses to keep up is the feeding of a rascally tramp being held in a cell at the shambles, and he declares that he be hanged that very night. Then they come to the expense of the great cage. The king says he came to the Bastille expressly for the purpose of seeing it, and he asks Master Olivier to read the costs while he examines it. This cage, made of countless beams, girders, joists, bars, nails, and clamps, and meant to hold prisoners of state, comes in at a total cost of 317 pounds in materials. Between Master Olivier's itemization of the expenses of construction can be heard the doleful voice of the man within the cage, proclaiming his innocence and pleading for mercy. That is, his voice can be heard by everyone present except the king, who, only after leaving the room, thinks to ask whether there was someone in the cage. When he is told it is the Bishop of Verdun, he calls him a merry devil of a bishop, and goes on his way. During their tour of the cage, some dispatches had arrived, and Master Olivier begins to read them. As he does, Jacques Quatier bursts in the door, declaring that the people have risen in revolt. 
With a sidelong glance at the Flemings and a tone of rage, he tells the man to lower his voice. But when he is told the revolt is against the provost, his demeanor changes. He rubs his hands and his face becomes radiant as he asks how many there are and whether they are armed. When Quatier tells the king he must send aid to the provost, the king promises he will. Tomorrow. This change of demeanor is mystifying to the men in the room, and to us the readers, until he betrays himself with a few slips of the tongue, asking what was, is, the provost's jurisdiction, and then asking whether he was truly king of all that. It then becomes explicit when he proclaims, Good, my people, bravely done, betray these false lords. Quatier tells the king that the watch captured two stragglers of the revolt, and asks if he wants to see them. The king tells him to go quickly and fetch them, that he might interview them. They are Gifoy Pinsbord and our old friend Pierre Gringoire. When questioned about his part in what the king now calls the damnable revolt, Pinsbord, with his misshapen head within which thought comes hard, says, I don't know. The others went, so I went too. After a few more questions, the king delivers him into the hands of the dog tiger, who we learn is his hangman. He then turns to question Gringoire, who says there has been a mistake, declares his innocence, and, when the king proposes to hang him too, falls at his feet and tries to extemporize his most pathetic work yet. His declamation is funny from start to finish, in all its exaggerated poetic proportions. But the line that caught me off guard and made me laugh out loud was this proclamation of his faithfulness to the king. Quote, A good subject should feel the same jealousy for the glory of his king that the husband feels for the honor of his wife. Unquote. I was halfway through the next sentence before I caught the absurd irony of it. Very loyal to his wife's honor, that one. Having seen the king deaf to the cries of the bishop, and having seen him send Giefoy to the gallows without a second thought, we are primed to think that Gringoire's pleas will be to no avail. But apparently the king is also capable of capricious and senseless acts of clemency, and he lets Gringoire go, to the regret of the surly hangman. Jacques Quatier sees this, and the king's other irrepressible displays of delight, as an opportunity. For, quote, the king's feeble health was the worthy man's only source of income, and he made the most of it, unquote. He reminds the king of his own illness, and, as he examines him, expresses grave alarm. As he contemplates a cure for the king's very serious malady, he mentions, as an aside, that there is a vacancy in the king's court, and that he has a nephew. And also, that he is in desperate need of a new roof for his house. After the king accedes to his demands, a cure comes to him. Master Olivier, too, attempts to jump on board the bandwagon of the king's generous mood, but the king has reached his limit. He reminds him point by point of the gifts already extorted from him, and commands Master Olivier to be silent. 
Hugo then reveals to us that this is the man known to history as Olivier Le Mauvais, Olivier the Wicked, a figure known for court intrigue and violence, who was eventually tried and hanged. These distractions aside, the king's thoughts turn again, with delight, to the uprising against the provost. Jacques Copinol, then, despite Rim's reminder that he is speaking to a powerful king, warns that this uprising may not be so easily put down, and that the people's hour will come. As he explains to the king, from personal experience, how one orchestrates a rebellion, Master Olivier delivers the news that this rebellion is not, in fact, directed against the provost, but against the king himself. At this news, defense can no longer wait until tomorrow. The king commands all his troops to go to Notre Dame with orders to kill, exterminate, and let no one escape. As an afterthought, they consider the reasons for the uprising and someone speculates that the mob wishes to see justice done and hang the witch that was given sanctuary. The king then makes the senseless declaration that they should therefore kill the mob and hang the witch, a judgment that recalls the line earlier that he has, quote, a doctor for himself, a hangman for the rest of the world, unquote. Reminded by Tristan Lermite that she has been given sanctuary, he makes a dubiously tender plea for pardon to his patroness, Our Lady of Paris, and promises her a silver statue in return. Moving from the Bastille to the streets of Paris, we see the rendezvous of Gringoire and Claude Frollo, and the former gives the priest the watchword that will allow them to penetrate the mob and make their way to the church. And they go. Finally, Continuing the series of senseless and capricious judgments and alliances, Quasimodo sees the troops led by Captain Phoebus come to hang the witch and kill the mob that would save her, and he celebrates. He derives strength from their aid and fights the vagrants at their side. The frightful conflict in which the vagrants, including their leader, Clopin Troyfou, are hacked, blinded, dismembered, and shot— ends as the survivors yield and flee in every direction. Quasimodo then gives praise to heaven, runs to Esmeralda's cell, and finds it empty. The second of my posts was called Monty Python-esque Hugo. Scanning through this chapter, I was tempted to skip it. Page after page contained not a mention of one of our central cast of characters— Sure, we had encountered Guillaume Rim, Jacques Copinol, Jacques Quatier, and His Majesty the King in prior chapters, and with entertaining results. But I wanted to rapidly brush the pages aside and get back to Claude Frollo, Esmeralda, Phoebus, and Quasimodo. But when, as I was flipping through, I came to Gringoire, I thought I'd better commit myself. So I began recording the chapter. And though if I were Hugo's literary editor, I would still ask him to reconsider at least substantial parts of it, I am glad I've read it. It is more of Hugo's wildly imaginative, incisive, and hysterical parodying. Of all the funny moments in this chapter, I found the scene with the cage the funniest. The juxtaposition of the king's preoccupation with the cost of the cage, 
and the prisoner's doleful speeches about the fourteen years unjustly spent within it, was funny enough. But the escalation of the prisoner's wailing and the king's utter deafness to his cries put this scene over the top. "'Mercy, sire! I swear that it was my lord cardinal of Angers, and not I, who plotted the treason.' "'The mason charges well,' said the king." "'Alas, sire, will you not hear me? "'I protest that it was not I who wrote that thing to my lord of Guienne, "'but his highness, Cardinal Balou.' "'The joiner is dear,' observed the king. "'I am innocent. "'For fourteen years I have shivered in an iron cage. "'Have mercy, sire. "'You will find your reward in heaven.' "'Master Olivier,' said the king, "'what is the sum total?' But then, to add humor to comedy, as they leave the room and return to the king's chamber, the king asks, as an afterthought, "'By the way, was there not someone in that cage?' This scene seemed to me straight out of Monty Python. Did anyone else, after reading it, think, "'Bring out your dead. I'm not dead yet.'" <laughs> I recall reading that one of the writers of Monty Python wanted to make a film version of Notre Dame, but that the Disney version beat him to it and overlapped too closely with his own intentions. I tried to find that article again to convince you and myself that it exists, but I didn't succeed. So if you can, let me know. The last of my posts to the Facebook group was something written by Robert Louis Stevenson about the theme of Notre Dame and it integrates both my reservations about whether it has a theme and something some of you have proposed as what the theme is. So I'm going to quote it here. The moral end that the author had before him in the conception of Notre Dame de Paris was, he tells us, to denounce the external fatality that hangs over men in the form of foolish and inflexible superstition. To speak plainly, this moral purpose seems to have mighty little to do with the artistic conception. Moreover, it is very questionably handled, while the artistic conception is developed with the most consummate success. And then, Hugo has peopled this Gothic city, and above all, this Gothic church, with a race of men even more distinctly Gothic than their surroundings. We know this generation already. We have seen them clustered about the worn capitals of pillars, or craning forth over the church leads with the open mouths of gargoyles. About them all there is that sort of stiff, quaint unreality, that conjunction of the grotesque, and even of a certain bourgeois snugness, with passionate contortion and horror, that is so characteristic of Gothic art. Esmeralda is somewhat an exception. She and the goat traverse the story like two children who have wandered in a dream. The finest moment of the book is when these two share with the two other leading characters, Dom Claude and Quasimodo, the chill shelter of the old cathedral. It is here that we touch most intimately the generative artistic idea of the romance. Are they not all four taken out of some quaint molding, illustrative of the Beatitudes, or the Ten Commandments, or the Seven Deadly Sins? What is Quasimodo but an animated gargoyle? What is the whole book but the reanimation of Gothic art? Let me know if you have any more thoughts about theme. 
And meanwhile, we have just two readings to go before this book is done. I'll be sorry to see it end, but I look forward to new adventures.